We've been saying that the theme of this letter is in Christ alone. Paul wants to impress on the Colossians that Christ must be the center of their lives and their thinking. In chapter 1, he said to them, In Him, that's in Christ, all things hold together. But the Colossians are being tempted away from this truth. In our passage last week, Paul said, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So clearly, there is a real danger these believers will be taken captive in their thinking. There's a danger they'll come to depend on something other than Christ. So in our passage this evening, Paul gives the Colossians a call back to reality. We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 16 down to verse 23. And if you have a church Bible, that's page 1183. We've just been singing about Jesus' victory. And in this letter, Paul has just explained in verse 15 that by means of the cross, Jesus has defeated every other power. He continues then in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This is God's word. First of all, Paul calls these believers from the shadows of religious ritual to the reality of Christ. In verse 16, you'll notice Paul mentions two types of religious ritual, eating and drinking and festivals, special holy days. And he says, don't let anyone judge you on the basis of whether you participate in these rituals or not. Notice he doesn't say don't participate in the rituals, and he doesn't say do participate. He says don't let anyone judge you in regard to these things. In other words, don't let people take you to task about these things. Don't let people pressure you and put you under obligation to these things. 
So we have to ask, what exactly are these rituals that Paul is talking about? Well, they seem to be taken at least in part from Old Testament law. I say in part because the Old Testament food laws forbade certain kinds of meat, but they don't give a blanket ban on any kind of drink. Although people could take special Nazarite vows to abstain from alcohol. But these teachers in Colossae seem to be insisting on abstinence from meat and alcohol. They're saying real Christians, truly spiritual Christians, don't touch that stuff. Then the other area concerns special days. If believers were being ordered to abstain from meat and alcohol, they were being ordered to religiously keep certain special days. And here the reference certainly is to the Old Testament holy days, including the Sabbath. Apparently the Colossians are being told that real Christians must be religious about special days. But Paul's message on all of this is no. You're free to abstain from meat and alcohol if you want, You're free to treat certain days as special if you want. But you are not free to turn those things into big issues. You're not free to make them tests of whether someone's really spiritual or really a Christian. Why? Because, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul is saying that those rituals and practices had a part to play in the past. The food regulations taught people about the need for purity. And the special days taught people about the need for rest. That's what Sabbath means. Those regulations had a place. But it was only a temporary place. Their purpose, Paul says, was to prepare people for the reality that they were going to find in Christ. In him, they would find true purity. And in him, they would find true rest. So when Jesus came, those shadows, or preparatory sketches, if you like, lost their significance. Just like the artist's impression of a building loses its significance once the building is actually built. At the moment, we have a building site just across the road from us. And in front of the site, there's a big painting of what the finished complex is going to look like. But it's only there to give us an idea of what to expect. It has no other reason for existing. And when the building is finished, that painting will have served its purpose. It will be taken away. Paul is saying to the Colossians, that's what those Old Testament religious rituals were for. They were there to point to Christ. And now that Christ has come, they have served their purpose. Don't treat them as if they are the reality. That's what our reading in Hebrews was saying too. Those things were only ever the artist's impression. We find our true purity and our true rest in Jesus. 
So Paul is saying, don't turn from Jesus and try to find purity and rest in the shadows. And we might ask, do we have any evidence that Jesus himself taught this? Well, in Mark chapter 7, we find Jesus saying this with regard to purity. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of man's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Jesus' point is, You need a new heart if you're going to be truly clean. And only I can give you that. Then in Matthew chapter 11, we find Jesus saying this with regard to rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. True rest and true purity are found in Jesus. They're found through putting our trust in what Jesus did on the cross. His death allows us to rest from all of our struggles to earn God's favor. God is pleased with his son's sacrifice. And when we belong to his son, God is pleased with us too. And Jesus' death allows us to be washed clean on the inside. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation with a new heart. So the message is, feel free to abstain from food and drink. Feel free to keep certain days special. But don't try and give those practices any big spiritual significance. And don't try and impose those practices on others. Paul is saying that's a move away from the reality and back to the shadows. The outcome of it will be to distract people from Christ's work and back to their own work. And that can only lead to pride and self-righteousness. Now at this point, the obvious question is, are there no regulations for these kind of things? Food and drink and days. Can we do absolutely whatever we like? Well, elsewhere, Paul condemns those who let their stomach become a god. So if that's a danger for you or me, then we have good reason to make some rules for ourselves about food. Keeping those rules won't earn us God's favor, but they may keep us from sin. Paul also says elsewhere, do not get drunk on wine. If that's a danger for you or me, then we have good reason to make some rules for ourselves about wine. It may be wise to abstain entirely. 
Keeping that rule isn't going to earn us God's favor, but it might keep us personally from sin. And what about special days? Isn't Sunday special? Yes, Sunday is special in that it's the day we meet as the family of God and listen to God and praise God together as a body. For those reasons, Sunday is a very, very special day. For those reasons, we ought to do all we can to keep Sunday free for worshiping together. We won't survive as believers unless we do that. That's why the book of Hebrews says, let us not give up meeting together. So the New Testament gives us no license whatsoever for skipping church to lie in bed or go fishing or whatever else that might attract us. For that reason, Sunday is special. But it is not special because it has some special holiness attached to it. For those who are in Christ, every day of our lives is holy. It's set apart for Christ. Jesus lays claim to every day. He does not allow us to say, six days belong to me to do whatever I want, and one day belongs to God. Our days at work are to be given to him just as much as our day of Christian fellowship. So as John Calvin put it, we meet together on Sunday for the sake of order, not because it's a sacred day. We meet on Sunday because most of us don't have work responsibilities on Sunday. Now yes, there is historic significance to Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's how it came to be called the Lord's Day. And that makes it an especially meaningful day for us all to meet together. But God has not required that we meet on Sunday. If we lived in a culture where Thursday happened to be everyone's free day, then Thursday would do just as well for meeting together. It's the meeting together that's necessary, not the day when it happens. All of us, I think, have a tendency to make the way we do things into the standard for how everybody else should do things. We all have a tendency to take our own rituals and give them a religious significance. But Paul is calling us back to reality, from the shadows of religious ritual to the reality of Christ. But rituals are not the only things that can distract us from Christ. In verses 18 and 19, Paul calls these believers back from being puffed up with pride over religious experiences to growing in Christ. Look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. 
False humility here seems to be referring back to the abstinence from certain kinds of food and drink. Apparently, the same teachers who were advocating that were also saying that abstinence would qualify you or lead you into spectacular religious experiences, visions of angels and other heavenly things. Now that phrase, the worship of angels, it might mean these people were worshipping angels. But it's more likely they were claiming to have been transported in a vision to join with the angels in their worship of God. So rather than describing false worship, the worship of angels is talking about the worship the angels are offering up to God. It's about true worship in the throne room of heaven. These teachers were claiming to have participated in that worship through some sort of visionary experience. And notice, Paul does not say they're lying. He does not say it's a load of rubbish. He says they are wrong to feel proud and superior because of it. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. We know that Paul himself had experienced at least one similar vision. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about a man in Christ who turns out to be Paul, and he says this man was caught up to the third heaven, and he heard inexpressible things. So Paul is not ruling out the possibility of visions. What he's concerned about here is what the person does after the vision. Paul kept quiet about his own visions until he faced a situation where he was forced to talk about them. But these teachers in Colossae are making these kind of experiences a test for how spiritually mature someone is. So really, these experiences are functioning the same way as the rules and regulations and rituals that he mentioned earlier. The sense is, if you have them, it's regarded as a sign you've arrived as a Christian. We touched on this when we looked at Acts this morning. There the issue was healing, but the point is just the same. Once we make these kind of miraculous experiences a requirement, then we open the door to all kinds of faking and fraud and manipulation. We make it almost inevitable that some Christians are going to end up feeling superior because they have had the experience or they claim to have had it. And others will feel inferior because they haven't. And here's the real issue in what Paul is saying. Making a big deal about unusual experiences, making those things our focus and chasing after them, that causes us to miss out on genuine spiritual growth. Look what verse 19 says about the person who's puffed up about their experiences. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, 
grows as God causes it to grow. The head here means Jesus, and the body is his church. Paul is saying that genuine growth for the church comes through a deepening relationship with Jesus and a deeper understanding of what he has done on the cross. In our passage last week, so earlier in this chapter, Paul said, we can only be built up in Christ. And that happens, he tells us, not as we chase after experiences, but as we focus on being strengthened in the faith we've been taught. When we chase after unusual experiences, we get distracted from pursuing genuine growth. That's true both as individuals and as a church body. So Paul is contrasting two kinds of growth here. Growth that comes from being puffed up by an unspiritual mind versus God-given growth that comes from closeness to Jesus. So we might think of the difference between a malnourished child and a well-fed child. Often starving children have great big stomachs, but they're just puffed up with air. That's very different from a child whose body is genuinely growing through proper nutrition. And there's a similar contrast between those who put their focus on experiences and those who focus on being strengthened in the faith they were taught. In verse 18, Paul says, Don't let those who focus on the spectacular disqualify you from the prize. The sense is, don't let them lead you off course in your pursuit of Christ. A couple of years ago, some of us from the church ran a 10K race over in Nottingham. At least, it was supposed to be a 10K race. The course had been measured as 10K. But during the race, a steward directed all the runners the wrong way. And as a result... We all ran something like a 7 or 8K, which was long enough for me. But the problem was for the serious runners. They'd been hoping to use their finishing time in that race to help them qualify for another race. And Paul is saying that we can have a similar experience spiritually. If we're not careful, people can set us off chasing after the wrong thing. But there are no shortcuts to maturity in the Christian life. We are foolish to chase spectacular experiences that are going to fast track us to maturity. God might give us those things. But what we need to focus on is a life of continual dependence on our head, Jesus Christ. And we do that as we give ourselves to the unspectacular discipline of studying his word and communicating with him in prayer. Finally, in verses 20 to 23, Paul calls these believers back from pursuing the appearance of holiness to pursuing genuine holiness in Christ. Verse 20, Since you died with Christ 
to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. What Paul is talking about here is putting the emphasis on internal victory over sin rather than putting the focus on external victory. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay to sin. Next week, Paul is going to insist that we put sin to death. But his point is, in order to put sin to death, we have to start by giving attention to our hearts. If we fight the internal battle against sin, we will make progress in the external battle. On the other hand, if we put our emphasis on the external regulations, we're going to fail completely because sin starts in the heart. I came across something from Bill Bryson that helps us to understand the point here. He's written a lot of books, and in his book, Down Under, Bill Bryson talks about a visit to Australia. One day, as he was walking through a town, he came across a pet supplies shop. At least, it looked like a pet supplies shop. The window was full of flea powder and fish flakes and so on. Bryson went inside. I don't know why. Maybe it was the only shop there was. Maybe he wanted to take home a present for his pet. But what he found inside the shop wasn't pet supplies, but pornography. Once he walked past the first few rows of fish flakes, there was a wooden gate and then shelves and shelves of explicit material. What was going on there? Well, it turns out that at one time in Australia, some local councils made a concerted effort to get rid of porn shops. Now, they thought it was fair to allow newsagents to have a small stock of the stuff. But they wanted to get rid of shops that were dedicated to pornography. So they made a law saying that a certain percentage only of the stock in any shop could be pornography. Did that solve the problem? No, it didn't decrease the number of porn shops. It just cleaned up the window displays of those shops. So long as the shop had enough tins of fish flakes to balance out the number of magazines and videos, then it was legally okay. The well-intentioned law failed completely. In fact, we could argue that it just made things worse because now the shops all looked safe on the outside. I think that helps us see the point that Paul is making here. He says in verse 23 that human rules lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Unless we are being changed on the inside, where all the sin comes from, 
then human rules are just sprucing up the outside appearance. Our hearts stay just as rotten as ever. And in fact, those rules can distract us from the thing that is going to change us in the inside, deepening our grasp of what Christ has achieved on the cross. Verse 20 says, You died with Christ to the basic principles of this world. That's a reference back to what we saw last week. On the cross, Jesus broke sin's hold on us. He offers us something better than sin. Through fellowship with him, we can have a fullness that sin can never give us. But of course, some people don't really care about the state of their hearts. They're quite happy if they can appear to be mature, obedient Christians. So Don Carson asks this question. How many are more concerned to be thought wise and holy than to be wise and holy? If you or I are happy to be thought wise and holy, then we're going to be content if we can keep a few rules. Do not handle this particular thing. Do not taste this other thing. And yes, there are things that we need to turn away from. Paul is going to deal with a long list of them next week. But he will also say next week that true victory over those things comes not through tightening up the rules. It comes through focusing on Christ and the fullness we have in Christ. God's Word is calling us away from pursuing the appearance of holiness to pursuing genuine holiness in Christ. All of us need regular calls back to reality. And we find that reality always in Jesus Christ. He is our wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. It's through His work that we gain an eternal crown. Not through our own religious performance, or experiences, or law-keeping. We're going to acknowledge that together as we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood?